Amen. Well, if you would please turn to Colossians chapter 1 as we pick up this morning at verse 15. Colossians chapter 1 at verse 15, and we'll read through to verse 20. Speaking of Jesus here, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross." Well, Paul has just concluded his opening remarks in which he has told the Colossians both of the great confidence that he has in the genuineness of their faith and of the ways in which he is currently praying for them. And as we've noted, more than just a formal introduction to this letter, these first 14 verses form a strong and solid foundation on which the rest of this letter will be built. They formed the initial refutation of the false teachers that were leading some in Colossae astray, or at least were in danger of leading some in Colossae astray. They formed this initial refutation of the false teachers who were coming and telling the Colossians that they must add to the work of Christ if they are to be truly blessed by God. It's in these verses that Paul approaches the fullness of the salvation that the Colossians had received from a variety of angles, using these opening verses to drive into the hearts of his readers the fundamental truth that in Christ all the fullness of God's blessing is to be found, and simply by being united to Christ by faith, the believer becomes the recipient of the fullness of God's blessing in Christ. Even as we saw last week, while Paul is perfectly willing to acknowledge that the Colossians need to continue to grow in their faith, and as they continue to need to mature in the outworking of that faith in their lives, Paul presses his readers to see that the source of that growth is simply found in a greater understanding of who Christ is and what it is that Christ has done. It's the crucial conjunction at the beginning of verse 10, isn't it? In verse 9, Paul says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Maybe if we turn it around, we see it a bit more clearly. How do we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him? Well, it's not through the bodily strictures and observances, uh, the observance of superstitious rituals that the false teachers seem to have been advocating. It is, rather, 
through being filled with the knowledge of the will of God in Christ in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is to say, that Christian maturity is gained through knowing Christ better, through grasping Him more firmly and surrendering to Him more fully. And it's really to underscore this crucial point, this very point on which the the rest of this letter is built, the perfect sufficiency of Christ. It's really to drive this, this point home into the hearts of his readers that Paul now turns to what is a brief but a deep dive into the doctrine of Christ. Now, many of you will be familiar in the hymn, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, that John Newton wrote what is maybe the most beautifully succinct summary of sanctification that has ever been written, when he wrote the simple words, when we see thee as thou art, we'll praise thee as we ought. That's really the essence of the passage that we're looking at here this morning. As Paul continues to build his argument, as he continues to gently lead his congregation away from the the cliff edge of the heresy that is being promoted in Colossae, what he wants to do is fix their eyes, fix their hearts on Christ so that they will see Him as He is, not as they imagine Him to be, not as the false teachers are presenting Him to be, but that they will see Him as He is, and then will praise Him as they ought. Now, Paul begins here by making the statement that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That is a crucial statement and one that works on two important levels. In the first instance, Paul is saying that Jesus is the great revelation of God, that in Jesus Christ, God has been perfectly revealed to humanity. It's what Jesus Himself said to Philip. You remember in John 14, verses 6 through 9, Jesus is interacting with His disciples in one of these passages that reveals to us, the reader, that the disciples, for all that they're getting right, still have a lot that they don't understand about Jesus. And Jesus says to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's that's one of these statements by Jesus that, that I think must have been devastating to the disciples, right? By this time, they've spent a considerable amount of time with Jesus. They've they've listened to His preaching. They've watched His interactions. And Jesus essentially turns to them and says, you don't know me. For all the time that you have spent with me, you don't really know who I am. If you had known me, He says to Thomas, you would have known my Father also. And I think maybe, maybe this is going too far. Maybe this is speculation that crosses the bounds. But I think if I was there amongst the, the disciples, that's one of these statements that just would have cut into my gut. And I think it's out of that that Philip then says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. 
And do you remember how Jesus responds? He says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says to his disciples in this in this vital statement, he says to them, if you want to know what the Father is like, if you want to know what God is like, then all you need to do is look at, at me. John Calvin, commenting on these verses in John, wrote that Jesus is, is claiming that he is the, the lively image or portrait of God. Because in him, God has fully revealed himself so far as God's infinite goodness, wisdom, and power are clearly manifested in him. Jesus is this final and perfect revelation of the Father, as if all the way through the Old Testament, from the beginning of Genesis all the way through, we, we are getting more, a, a clearer and clearer picture of, of Jesus. Uh, of God. Now, do you remember the old televisions that you had to tune in? Right? It seems like a, a world away now, but despite being a borderline millennial, I'm still old enough to remember what it was to have to tune in a television. And you tuned it in, and the, and the picture is flicking down the screen, and you, you turn that knob, and it and it slows, and then it goes back and forth, and then it comes in, and then suddenly that's it, and everybody in the room yells, stop, that's it, right? And in a sense, the Old Testament is tuning it in, and we get this, this clearer and clearer picture developing all the way through the Old Testament. We're seeing it even in our readings in Genesis, aren't we? We're seeing the, the nature of God being revealed to us, the character and the attributes of God being revealed to us. But what Jesus says to, to Philip and Thomas and the rest of the disciples is, is that he has come as that, as that clear revelation of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Right? And so, for Paul to state that Jesus, who has, verse 13, delivered us from the domain of darkness, or rather, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For Paul to say that that Jesus is the image of the invisible God is to make a statement that is so grand, that is so packed full of significance, that it could just stand by itself. In a sense, what more do you need to know than that the one who has redeemed you and facilitated the forgiveness of your sins, in whom the forgiveness of your sins is found, to know that He is this image of God, this, this portrait of God, as Calvin called Him. What else do you need to know about His supremacy and His sufficiency than, than that. But th this could just be Paul's response to the false teachers. He could just end it here and drop the mic and, and, and walk out. In a sense, it's a statement that's so rich and full of significance that it tells you everything that you need to know about Jesus. 
right, we can easily extrapolate and see how that bare fact encompasses everything about our identity as Christians, about our self-understanding and our understanding of the economy of salvation. Right? If this is who Jesus is, then how could we possibly dare to think that there's something that we could add on to His saving work? Or, in another sense, how could we possibly think that there would be something insufficient in His saving work that needs to be completed by us? And it's a statement that humbles us. It's a statement that calibrates our hearts. It's a statement that, that, that brings us back from our, our pride. It's a statement that makes us rest in the everlasting arms of Jesus and find security in the knowledge that if this is who my Redeemer is, then I have nothing to fear because I have been saved from God, for God, by God. And so, it's a simple statement, but it's rich and it's full. But notice that Paul doesn't just leave it by itself. He, he, he could have, as we've said, but instead he goes on and he expands his point because he wants us to see the nuances of what that means. He wants to go on and explicitly unpack it for us. So, he goes on, and he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, his point is not that Jesus is the first created being, right? There are some that have twisted this verse to make it seem as if that is what Paul is, is saying, but it's, it's not what Paul is saying. In fact, it can't be what Paul is saying. If you just follow the sentence. He says, uh, He is the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created. Right? He cannot be creator and creature at the same time, so it, it, it doesn't fit. So, so, what is Paul saying? Well, well, there might be a footnote in your Bibles that there's an alternate way of translating it, maybe a better def… well, I don't want to argue with the translators of Scripture. There are men who are far more intelligent than I, but it would seem better to translate this, that Jesus is the firstborn over creation, right? The point that Paul is making is not one of sequence, it's one of significance. He's saying that Jesus is the one who has the honor and the status of being the inheritor of all creation, that He is the one to whom all creation belongs as part of the sovereign grant of the Father. But then, Paul goes on to expand that thought further by saying, that, as we just noticed, that Jesus is the very agent of creation. He is, verse 15, the, the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, or firstborn of over all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Now, if we just break down the, the structure of what Paul is doing here, there's a sense in which this is a, a technical passage. Verse 16 is his proof. 
So, so verse 15, he makes this grand assertion of Jesus' glory and majesty, and he says, and, and here's the proof of it. Jesus is the one through whom all things were created, and He is the one for whom all things were created. And then, to tie it all together, in verse 17, He gives us a summary statement. He says, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. A statement that speaks to Christ's eternality and to His sovereignty over all that He has made. A statement that speaks to His absolute supremacy over all things. Now, you understand what Paul's doing here. It's, it's overwhelming, right? If you're sitting there and you feel like the last 10, 15 minutes have felt like drinking out of a fire hydrant, then, then you, you get it, right? Uh, Paul is, is writing it like this uh, deliberately. He is, he is mounting up every one of these statements, these statements that are so significant that we could take them apart and just do a whole sermon series on, this, on these three verses. But Paul piles these statements up one upon another upon another so that he, so that he is driving into our hearts and into our minds this picture of Christ's overall supremacy and sufficiency. Right? Paul is depicting Christ as the sphere in which all of creation exists. Right? Or we could think of it like this. Paul is getting to terms with his readers. Right? Now, this is a point that you have heard me make many, many times, and I'm just going to keep making it many, many times because it's so important. And two weeks ago, uh, when I was gone, I was, I was in a, a research and methodology class. And, and we were just being, you know, drilled into good uh, discipline of, of methodology. And one of the books that we had to read for that class is one that I've mentioned before, How to Read a Book by, uh, by uh, Mortimer Adler. Uh, and one of the key things that he makes in, in that book, and one of the key things that was being driven into us in our class is that in order to understand anybody, you have to get to terms with them. I didn't... So, my focus is history, and, and this is important because how people used to use words and how people now use words are, are different. So, we have to get to terms with these historical figures. We have to make sure that when they say this word that we understand what they mean by that word. That's what Paul's doing here, right? He's getting to terms with his readers. He is wanting to establish a shared vocabulary so that when, when he says Christ we think the same things that he is thinking, not the things that the false teachers are thinking when they say Christ. He wants to, to drive this into us, to, to, to calibrate our minds, to redefine our categories, so that when he see, says Jesus or, or Christ, we understand that he is speaking about the one who is both the agent of creation and the goal of creation, that he is speaking about the one apart from whom literally nothing in all of creation, either that which we can see and feel, and, and smell, and, and hear on this world, or the invisible creation of the heavenly realms. 
Paul wants us to see that there's nothing that does not have its source in Christ. There is nothing that is not dependent upon Him for its daily sustenance. There is nothing that wasn't created for the glory of Christ. To put it simply, what Paul wants to establish in his readers is an understanding that Jesus is the hub around which absolutely everything exists. He is both the source and the destination of all things. He is all-encompassing. Or if we put it in the terms that Paul used when he was preaching in Athens, Jesus is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. When we think of Christ, Paul is saying, we must think of Him as God with all that that entails. And we can see how that counters the false gospel being promoted in Colossae, can't we? That false gospel that said something must be added to the insufficient work of Christ if we are to receive the fullness of God's blessing. Paul is saying, no, just step back for a minute. Look at who Jesus is. There can be nothing insufficient about Him and the redemption that He has brought. There can be nothing that is outside of His control, nothing that is apart from His authority, nothing that is beyond His scope. As God, our Redeemer, Jesus rules all things according to the counsel of His own will. But then, Paul takes it even one step further, and he tells us that Christ is not only the goal and the agent of creation, He is the goal and the agent of the new creation. Look at verse 18, he goes on and he says, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Now, you remember at the start, I said that that statement that Jesus is the image of God in verse 15 works on two levels. This is the second way in which Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, maybe when we read that, your minds immediately jumped to Genesis 1, and, and they, they should have, right? When Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's hard, I think, for us to not jump back to Genesis 1:26, where we're told that Adam was made in the image and the likeness of God. Adam was, of course, created, as our catechism tells us, as the image of the invisible God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. Adam was literally the firstborn of creation. He was the, the first created human, distinct from the animals as the one bearing the image of God on earth, reflecting the glory of God and representing the work of God. And had Adam kept the terms of the covenant of works, he would have been head over the church, not as Lord, but as progenitor of the godly, as the father of the faithful. But when Adam sinned against God, when he fell from his position of honor and dignity, 
The quest immediately began for another who could take his place, another man, a second man, another image-bearer, with knowledge uncompromised, perfect in his righteousness, true in his holiness, who could exercise dominion, not just over the creatures, but over sin itself. Right from the minute that Adam fell and failed in his task as the federal head of humanity, the quest began that if humanity was to be brought into a place of blessing, if we were to be brought back into Eden and established there so that we would not fall again, then we needed another Adam. We needed another federal representative head who would do what the first had failed to do. Paul makes the connection with Christ explicit in 1 Corinthians 15, for he says at verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He sums it up in verse 45, he says, thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so when Paul is saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he is saying, as verse 18 makes clear, that Jesus is not just the sphere in which creation is to be understood. He is the sphere in which the new creation is to be understood standing in Adam's place, standing as the last Adam. Jesus obeyed the law of God and submitted to the will of God and resisted the temptations of the devil and in doing so fulfilled the terms of his probation and was awarded his kingdom as a result. It's what Paul says in Philippians 2. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because he did that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. If Adam had kept the terms of his probation, if Adam had had obeyed the will of God and kept the law of God, then he would have been highly exalted. He would have been the father of the faithful, and we would have lived in a kingdom free from sin and free from the effects of sin, but he failed. But in his room instead, Jesus came as this next Adam, as this new federal head, and he did what the first had failed to do. And because of that, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him this name that is above every name. The first Adam forfeited his reward as he failed his test. Jesus obeyed to the bitter end and gained his reward and became the head of the church, the headwaters of this new creation. And we could go on. Our time is slipping rapidly away from us this morning. This is rich, and it's full. Really, it is too rich and full to be done justice in this short amount of time. But I want you to feel the power of these verses. 
I want you to feel the, the overwhelmingness of these verses. I want you to be swept along by the enormity of the doctrine that the apostle unleashes in this short space. This passage is written in such a way that it is designed to overwhelm you with the grandeur and the glory of Christ. Remember, Paul is doing this with a distinct purpose. He's making statement after statement to paint this picture of Christ as supreme over all things, to put away all small thoughts of Christ. He wants to counter the false teachers, not necessarily by going toe-to-toe with them and countering every point, but instead the approach that he is taking is one in which he wants to fill the minds of his readers with these grand thoughts of Christ, so that what the false teachers are promoting will just become unthinkable to them. He wants his readers to see Christ as he is, so that they will then praise Him as they ought. And that, of course, is the major point of application for us, isn't it? Next week, we'll follow Paul's logic down into verses 21 and 22 and 23, and we'll see how the apostle pointedly applies us to the assurance that Christians can have before God. But before we get there, We need to stop and just absorb the weight of what is being communicated here. This is a heavy passage, and we need to stop and feel the weight of it so that we grasp the implications of what Paul is saying for our standing before God. Just like with the Colossians, it is easy for us to slip into small thoughts of Christ. It's easy for us to get caught up in the true humanity of Jesus and to begin to think of Him as just one of us, but better. Right? Even if we know our doctrine and we have memorized our catechism, it's easy for us to functionally think of Jesus along the lines of being an elevated human rather than the incarnate God. Now, the true humanity of Jesus is a precious and an important doctrine. It is vitally important that we grasp the reality of Hebrews 4.15, that Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin, that He is therefore a sympathetic high priest. It's vital that we understand His, His true humanity and all that that means for His position as as our Redeemer and our position as the redeemed. But it's vital that we don't overcorrect and see His humanity as something of a mirage or a, a, a phantom. What Paul is saying here is that if we are to truly grasp the fullness of the gospel, if we are to be properly anchored by the hope of our redemption so that we are not buffeted by every wind of doctrine that comes our way, or by every doubt and question that arises in our hearts, if we are to be solid Christians, then we must grasp the weighty glory of Jesus as nothing other than the incarnate God, 
the one who is Lord over all creation, who made it and who sustains it, and who as that God is the one who is bringing redemption for the faithful. What Paul wants us to grasp, what he wants us to be overwhelmed by, is the truth of verses 19 and 20, that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. On the cross, it was God himself bearing the full weight of the penalty of his own law to bring us to himself. Do you understand how that absolutely defines you as a Christian? Do you understand how that solidly anchors your hope of salvation? You understand how that defines and informs everything that you believe about God and everything that you understand about the life that you are to live in light of your salvation. Understanding the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ is the starting point from which everything else flows. It is the hub to which everything else is connected. May God, by the ministry of His Holy Spirit, enable us to see Christ as He is, that we might praise Him as we ought. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, there is a lot in these passages that we have looked at very briefly this morning, but we pray that Your Spirit would help us to consider these things in our hearts that we might meditate upon them, that we might ruminate upon them, and that in doing so, we might see Jesus more clearly. Oh Lord, we confess that we are often not far away from the disciples in John 14. We know Jesus, we see Him, but yet there is so much about Him that we struggle to get our minds and our hearts around. Lord, be gracious to us that we would see Him as He is, that we would be overwhelmed by Him, that we would be able to keep His humanity and His divinity in its proper tension, and in doing so, be all the more solid and assured uh, in our confidence in Him as our great Redeemer. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.